Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. As I mentioned, I've introduced while uh, kind of there's well, there's so little performing arts to actually see, I thought we'd have a series of conversations demystifying what kind of different roles in the arts do. And today I'm joined on the line by choreographer and dancer Joe Lloyd. We're going to talk about choreography. Joe, lovely to hear your voice on the airwaves again. It's been a while since you were a, a semi-regular kind of presenter here on the program. Yes, it's been a while, but I can almost visualise us sitting there opposite each other with our headphones, you know. So, for people who don't know, what exactly does a choreographer do? Do you just tell dancers how to wave their hands and leap about a room, or is there more to it than that? Well, look, I think there are people out there that that's the way they work. So, um, it is purely this sort of, I'm at the front of the studio telling you exactly what to do. But I think... um, it trickles down from there in various ways that people work with choreography and I think it's um, you know quite a um, mysterious sort of uh, area choreography because it, it it's almost in everything you know so in all the works that um, people go to see in theatre there's an element of choreography going on even an element of choreography going on in each person's daily activities sort of um, the, the idea of choreography, for me, I always go back to these um, simple explanations, I guess, but complex, which, you know, it's an intersection of space and time. It's um, also about structured action. So, um, and there's all sorts of ways in which performance can be prepared for so that it's either um, working with parameters or it's working with really set, repeatable modules of of, of movement. So I think... um, when it comes back to just thinking about the intersection of space and time, you know, we all um, could uh, perceive that, you know, from the minute we wake up. But when we put it on stage, I guess that's when we get to play with it in interesting ways. <laughs> now, when you say um, modules of movement, uh, let's unpack that a little bit because I to, to watch a full-length work of contemporary dance, for example, it might go for... It might only go for 20 minutes, it might go for 50 minutes, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes or something. That work is then what made up of modules of movement and part of the art of choreography is not just then kind of piecing them together so that it feels like a coherent work, but it's about instructing kind of whether it's you choreographing on... That's a hard word to say sometimes without... Particularly when I haven't had enough coffee. Uh, Whether it's about you kind of like um, choreographing on yourself or on other dancers. You're thinking about how the body moves through space over a a set period of time, whether it's a few seconds, a few minutes or or an hour. Where do those ideas come from? Are you kind of thinking about movement you've observed and then thinking, how do I change that? How do I make it fresh? Yeah, I guess going back to the idea of modules, I I think, um, you know, it's quite um, common to work in this way of um, making phrases, you know, so it might be counts of eight for some choruses and those phrases can then be built upon to make a section or you know, like a scene, and then the scenes can be put together in a larger work like you're talking about. But often 
that sort of format is, you know, destabilised. And I think for me, I've grown up with those sorts of ways of making full-length works or even shorter works. And I think I've been fascinated with how other... um, Way, other ways that we can um, sort of function in performance. So I think, you know, when when it comes to the sort of space and time um, combo, it's, it's a thing of, you know, so this idea that I might find in the body and then develop, does that serve it best over two hours in a repeatable fashion or does it serve it best that idea and that little state of physicality doesn't serve it best over a minute, really, in a certain context. So I think the context of, of the time and the, the space really um, plays a huge part in how you make your choices about what you're investigating. So I guess I, I come really, you know, like from the body. So a lot of the time I work solo and I sort of investigate the internal mechanisms or dialogues that I'm having or the body sort of knows more than I do. You know, it sort of finds these dances and then I have to kind of observe them from the outside or get other people to observe them and tell me what's going on. And so from there I tend to build vocabularies. Um, But, I mean, this is one or two or three ways in which choreography plays out or builds or is worked with. I mean, another way in which I have really been interested in working for the last few works is having set sort of parameters or instructions for the dancers and I to negotiate in rehearsal, but then also revealing that process live so that it's not about a finished product that we can repeat from the start of the piece to the end. So there's a lot going on in terms of um, act and react in live performance, which I thrive on and it kind of terrifies me, but I've worked out that, you know, I'm more interested in that in a lot of ways. So the combination of, yes, we'll do this the same every night or we'll attempt attempt to do it the same every night, but also there'll be elements that are just really unknown and the, then the viewer gets to witness um, this negotiation, which I think is interesting, or even to the point of watching people cope or, um, (laughs) you know, um, see it fall apart. And, um, yeah, it's much... I think that allows for complexities that um, are sometimes, for me, harder to actually manipulate or choreograph in a a form, you know... um, that can be repeatable. Now, you mentioned th- that idea of finding an idea inside the body. When did you first find an idea in your body that you wanted to express in this physical way? Can you remember the first piece you Ooh. choreographed on yourself? Was it as a child, for example? That's pretty fascinating. Um, and just the other day, I was listening to that track that um, Cosmic Dancer, you know, I was I, you know, I came out of the womb dancing. I think um, I do a lot of dancing at home, and I think I've got a bit of a traditional tale of, you know, my sister did modern dance, at, and I used to watch and have to get picked up, you know, by my mum. So I have to sit and wait until her class finished. So, you know, one time the teacher said, join in, and so that was the moment of going, oh, take the ballet tights off, go from the feet turned out to the feet turned in, and, you know, there was this like wow moment. So it was but I think I always was dancing to my brother's records and I was always doing things at home and I think I was I was writing a lot too, like just, you know, in a diary, you know, grade six, you know, fun stuff. But I think that internal thinking and um the relationship to the doing was 
was something I relished in. I think, you know, even in ballet when the teacher got us to do free dance and she had these narratives of, you know, the the, the fairy's wings broken so you've got to use some cobwebs to thread through the wing to sew it back up. And that sort of just resonated for me, this imaginary place in my head um, and patterns, I guess, and maths was always something I was interested in. So I think it was always there. I mean, I think I was a kid... You know, they used to say, you've got ants in your pants, you can't sit still. I think, you know, that was me. I was always upside down and going everywhere, you know. <laughs> so in terms of then taking those patterns and uh, patterns in uh, of movement, patterns through space, and asking other people to replicate what you see in your mind, talk to us about that aspect of choreography, because that's what I find fascinating. When you're envisaging something and you can perhaps feel the movement in your own body, but you're working with other dancers and asking them to recreate what you're thinking and feeling, that to me is, the, is where the magic happens, because you've got to externalise your own thoughts, physical feelings and emotions and find a language and a way to get other people to recreate that physically before you. Yeah, and I think you mentioning the language is huge because I work a lot with language, so we'll have certain statements that we'll, we can work on, like, you know, um, the vessel with no front came up when someone described what I was doing. So they were talking about my body and, you know, this oscillation in space and I was thinking okay vessel with no front and so that became something that I've worked with a lot and it really is it resonates the language resonates so I've tried to kind of almost create a notation with some of these statements um and I think it's interesting at the moment because I can do a little bit of solo rehearsal and I'm sort of on the brink of wanting to bring others in like I I do like working with groups but I've got these ideas, and until I trial them, I won't find out where the loopholes are or, what, you know, the solution-making. Choreography tends to have a lot of that. And the transmission, I think, from my body to others that, that you, you brought up, it's that thing of how do I want to do this? And there's various ways. And then it's almost, for me, it's an issue of why do I want them to dance like me? But I think it's definitely not about wanting to, you know, kind of clone me. I, that's sort of embarrassing, but it's... The thing of, if I find something I'm fascinated with, I'm interested in sharing it a bit like, I've cooked this, I want you to taste it, like I want you to experience what I'm experiencing. But I wouldn't, I don't want this sort of cut-out version of me. I mean, I think a lot of other choreographers need that and their work asks that, that precision of being um, aesthetically the same. And But I think I like this little slippage of difference um, with how people take it on and how they engage with ideas rather than sort of being me. You know, I, I would hate that. Like, I think, I think I've experienced those sorts of ways of having to be in other people's works, and sometimes that's really reassuring. It's like, do the steps, be the dancer that does the steps exceptionally well. And I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in that sort of tension between that and here, take this idea... But there's, there's something interesting about the transmission. I'm kind of at that point at the moment of like, well, if I'm interested in this, why would they be interested in this? You know, if it's quite, um, you know, deep-seated in, say, my history, which is something I'm interested in, the sort of history in the body, why would my history and my body need to be put into their body? But 
somehow in in the working that out, it becomes more and more fascinating. <laughs> if you've just if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Joe Lloyd, who's a, a dance artist and choreographer based here in Melbourne. Studied, uh, well, graduated from the VCA, has danced with uh, a range of companies in Australia, and has also performed in Japan, New York, Hong Kong, and elsewhere. Um, and Joe, you've also taught dance for somebody who is listening to this conversation or somebody who earlier in the year saw contemporary dance or ballet for the first time and it kind of blew their mind, what's your advice to them about how do you study choreography? How do you go from dancing in your own lounge room to presenting work professionally as an artist? What's your advice for someone taking those steps? Well, that's huge. I mean, it's great because... Um, sometimes I feel a bit like a fraud. Like I got the I got the training through VCA, and some of it was you know dipping in here and there in terms of history and and choreographic methods. But a lot of them were really you know straightforward, and I sort of feel like I missed out on a lot of that. So there's this ongoing um, building of awareness of the way people have worked with choreography and the way in which um, I'd like to work with choreography. So it's sort of sometimes this thing of I think for each person, no matter what you're learning, working out what best suits you in terms of um, uh, absorbing knowledge and how best, you know, that works for you. I think sometimes I like to leave gaps and then then I've got to kind of fill the gaps with my own um, intuition or my own um, motivation of how I think it should work. So if if I kind of studied it right to the nth degree, I wouldn't have those gaps and... I think it's so ongoing. Like, um, I think one of one of the choreographer Terry O'Connor said something about like, what else can this form do? And I really love that idea that what else can we, you know, with any art, you know, you keep on sort of scratching away, digging for what what else can we set up? Um, but I think in terms of study, it's really just gravitating towards other people, conversations, books. Um, and then just trying, you know, it's really scary, but it's just trying it. And um, there's a lot, there's a lot of material out there. And I think the body can be trusted a lot more. I think people, you know, often if they call on me to choreograph something or to work in a choreographic collaborative way, you know, maybe in a theatre work, I often get them to go to their body and it's kind of frightening for them, but the body has a lot of information that I think is endless so even if people go oh yeah but it's easy for you to say Joe you're a dancer you've always been dancing but I think I always feel like I'm still starting again you know I don't so I think there's a lot of information out there and it's it's about sort of having having that attempt the attempt becomes the choreography I think attempting is the choreography (laughs) That works for me. Joe Lloyd, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. At some stage uh, in the coming months, we really must try to get you and Gerard Van Dyke together back in the studio for our Dancing on the Radio segment. It's not been axed, it's been on hiatus, so it would be lovely to have the two of you back in the studio for a, a monthly conversation about what we can see in the world of dance again, once the world of dance has been taken out of mothballs and placed back on stage. Yeah, I think there'll be a floodgate and I'll, I'll be there to talk about it every month, I'm sure. Fantastic. I'm sure we'll be there. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Lovely to catch up. Thanks so much, Richard. Bye-bye. Triple R. Now... 
Melbourne Art Fair have made the decision to reschedule their event uh, until 2021, like a lot of arts organisations. So Melbourne Art Fair will be running from the 4th to the 7th of February 2021 in order to maintain the health and well-being well-being of their team, uh, the exhibiting galleries, artists and the wider community. But that doesn't mean you can't still look at art, uh, because running from the 1st to the 7th of June, Melbourne Art Fair are presenting viewing rooms, a virtual platform for the exhibition and sale of artwork live to the public. I'm joined on the line by the CEO of the Melbourne Art Foundation and the director of the Melbourne Art Fair, Marie de Pasquale. Marie, welcome back to Triple R. Okay, Richard, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So the idea of looking at art virtually and digitally, it, yep. I suspect it's never going to be quite the same as looking at work in the flesh in 3D, being able to see brushwork in detail or walk around a sculpture to get a a full sense of the work. But it's definitely better than nothing at all. That's it. Look, and we've developed the viewing rooms in partnership with an organisation called Ocular.com, an online platform, as an extension of the physical fair and the physical offering. So it's certainly not going to replace the physical art fair, but in a time or a post-COVID era, if you will, it allows our audiences to still maintain that contact with Australasia's leading galleries and their artists and continue that conversation of contemporary art, which is super important now more than ever. So in terms of the, the presentation of the work, how will it actually work? Are we, will it be the equivalent of a, a kind of, I don't know, a, a virtual tour that quite a few galleries around the country have been operating, for example, so that you can, I don't know, click your mouse to turn left or click to look at, a, at an artwork in more detail? Not as such. So when we developed the idea for the for the viewing rooms, um, we quickly realised that as an art fair organisation, our core business is operating, producing, managing art first, but we're not in the online space. So I identified pretty early on that what we need to do is work with someone already kept up and equipped in this area. Uh, and so that's why we chose to work with Ocular, who have an excellent platform and create viewing rooms already within their site. So they've developed a really comprehensive platform that um, is user-friendly, super intuitive in terms of how you approach the platform, and it provides individual viewing rooms or viewing spaces, much like standard and art fair where you move into that space and click through a number of artworks, um, provides details on the artworks, and something that's also quite appealing, I think, and um, a, a nice move, I think, for the art industry is that it actually lists prices or a price range. And that's a transparency in the art world that you don't always find um, with exhibitions or art fairs. Um, so having that uh, there in your face available removes that intimidation factor, I think, for a lot of people and makes the work or buying the work a lot more accessible. That's a really interesting step to take because, as you say, there is sometimes a lack of transparency. You, you might have to inquire specifically about mm-hmm. the price of an artwork and then kind of real in shock when you realise just how much out of your price range it is, for example, or kind of just smile and write out a cheque, whatever it may be. But has there been any pushback from the gallerists uh, to this idea of making kind of price ranges kind of more transparent, or have they quickly come on board with the idea? They've quickly embraced it, and I think a lot of galleries are doing that in any case online, because the reality is if you don't have that physical contact or connection with your audience, you've got the chance that you'll lose them. So quite often... Um, and uh, a collector, a buyer, the general public might visit an exhibition or an art fair and just automatically assume because of the environment that the work is out of their price range. 
which in actual fact, that's not the case. You know, in Melbourne Arts Fair, we have very extensive work that go up into hundreds of thousands, if not um, above. But we also have works that are around the $1,000 mark. And people might, they don't really know that unless they ask. So I think galleries are really coming on board to the fact that if you are open and transparent in an online space, um, it actually opens up the doors to new, potentially new buyers who may not know the industry or might have kind of been unaware of actually how affordable, in a sense, some of the work is. Now, the other thing that intrigues me about creating the, the Melbourne Art Fair viewing rooms is that the challenge of distance is then nullified. So mm-hmm. instead of... Um, Yes, you might at the art fair get some galleries from the Asia-Pacific region or further afield coming to exhibit, but the the cost of packing and freighting artwork to Australia kind of uh, is an issue. So for something mm. like this, does it mean that you can then invite more galleries from, I don't know, from New York or London, for example, or Berlin to participate? Uh, look, there might be something we do in the future. I, I think it's funny in the art world, I, we're at a point where we will refer to this as uh, the, the before COVID, post COVID. And I think what people have started to do is uh, accelerate their virtual development. So it might have been something that people were always looking at, but now they're in a position where they have to move forward with it. So at the, at the moment, we moved quite quickly in terms of developing the viewing rooms and the platform. And it was created really to showcase um, our galleries and their artists that were already participating within the Melbourne Art Fair community. Um, and so that's really focused on Australasia, showing the most exciting work from these regions. But that's not to say in the future that we could open it up and welcome more international galleries into the fold. But in this case, with this viewing room, um, it's important to say that the, the content is very much Australasia. Um, that is the focus of the art fair, and it's a highly curated selection. So you know that when you come to the platform, galleries that are on there have been invited to apply, to participate. So it's already pre-curated for you, in a sense. Um, and also, a lot of the work is actually in Australia. So even though we have some great New Zealand galleries, um, and yes, some of the work is in New Zealand, but actually some of the work is also here in Australia already. Um, so don't feel like you have to also think about shipping and the difficulties that come into play there. Um, you know, quite often the galleries have already thought about that for you. And looking at the list of participating galleries, yes, I can see uh, galleries from Adelaide, from Hobart, from Sydney, from yeah. Melbourne, uh, from Auckland, Wellington and so forth. Mm. How many galleries are represented and, uh, and is the focus on living artists? So the focus primarily is on living artists. However, we do have um, some deceased works from deceased estates um, participating. But in saying that, the fair is owned and operated by the Melbourne Art Foundation, which is pretty unique. There aren't really any art fairs around the world that operate on a non-profit basis. Um, and as a foundation, our remit is actually to support, promote uh, the livelihood of contemporary living artists. So you will find that most of the artists in the fair are indeed living now, if people want to kind of uh, take part, go online and look at the uh, Melbourne Art Fair viewing rooms, there's uh, oh. a, a VIP period from the 1st to the 2nd of June, which I presume is the period when serious collectors will be registering to go on and look at work, and then open to the general public from the 3rd to the 7th of June. Yes, that's correct. So this is a, a buying platform. So we do, we're, we're really promoting this viewing room as a chance for collectors and buyers to have first access 
to work that they probably wouldn't have gotten to see because of the physical um, restrictions in place um, and also the lack of movement between borders. So this is a great opportunity for collectors and buyers or people who are interested in buying art, maybe looking for a piece for their home, um, to really come to the platform and, and select something. Uh, in saying that, we also want the general public to view and see the works on offer, which they can do, and we welcome them because there is an education element to art fairs, even um, if in the virtual space. And so to support that and provide some context around that, we actually have developed a virtual public program, if you will. So there'll be virtual Zoom discussions um, about collecting in the art market. There'll be live studio visits um, and artist interviews and so on. So we encourage not just collectors and buyers, but also an arts-interested public to really get on board and explore the site. So this kind of what is effectively a free virtual art fair is running from the 1st to the 7th of June. Uh, and as Marie just said, yes, there are digital conversations and virtual artist studio tours, as well as the, the main focus, which is the Melbourne Art Fair viewing rooms. For more information, just jump online, melbourneartfair.com.au. And you'll find the link to the viewing rooms on the very front page of the site. Um, you can register for VIP access from the 1st to the 2nd of June. Otherwise, as we said, uh, open to the general public for, for browsing and engagement. And hopefully, if you're interested in purchasing an artwork for your home, uh, you can do that from the 3rd to the 7th of June. And VIP registrations, as I said, from the 1st to the 2nd of June. And Marie, obviously, we're about to enter what feels like the kind of not the end of lockdown and isolation, it's very much staggered uh, and being controlled, but then the art fair proper being presented next year from the 4th to the 7th of February. That's right, and we really see that as a return to culture for uh, not just Melbourne but Australasia. It's the first art fair in the calendar year and a real celebration that I think by that time we will all be very much looking forward to. And although virtual viewing rooms are wonderful and great to maintain that connection, there's nothing like being at an art fair and having those conversations and being a melting pot of the art world. So we look forward to welcoming you to the Convention Centre in Melbourne in Feb. For more information about the Melbourne Art Fair viewing rooms, as I said, running from the 1st to the 7th of June, jump online, melbourneartfair.com.au. I've been chatting with the CEO of the Melbourne Art Foundation and the Director of the Melbourne Art Fair, Marie Di Pasquale. Marie, thank you so much for joining us on Triple R today. Thanks so much, Richard. See you. Bye. Triple R. Now, yesterday, uh, in my day job, kind of working in my tracky dacks at home as I have been for the last two interminable months, I wrote a good news story about the performing arts sector. Up in Darwin, Brownsmart Theatre have announced that they're reopening next Friday with live music in their courtyard and play a play reading that night in their theatre. And it got me thinking, what is happening with the Performing Arts Centre locally? What's happening with the arts sector more generally in Victoria? When can we go back to the theatre? And so I thought I'd kick off a series of conversations with some arts leaders around the state talking about strategies and reopening and the post-COVID-19 world. Joining me on the line is Joel McGuinness, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Geelong Arts Centre. Joel, it's a pleasure to have your company on the program today. Absolutely. It's great to be with you. And as we were talking before, it's great to be out of the house um, somewhere different. It makes a real difference. Just kind of not the, just the, because the, I think, as I said to you, that's the one of, for me, one of the biggest challenges yeah. over the, the last two and a bit months has been the lack of stimulus and the sameness of day after day after day. 
Yeah, I was excited about putting on jeans instead of tracky pants today to come out of the house. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So before we talk about the, the kind of strategy for what the future looks like for Geelong Arts Centre, I wanted to acknowledge mm. that um, earlier this month, uh, the Victorian state government announced a, a new $32.3 million support package as part of a, a larger package they'd previous... Uh, kind of adding to a larger mm. package of funding they'd previously announced to the sector. Some of that money has gone specifically to Geelong Arts Centre. What has that kind of additional kind of uh, strategic funding uh, been used by, uh, used yeah. for? Yeah, look, absolutely. We really welcome the announcement from the state government to support the, the experience economy and, and support, uh, you know, a lot, lots of organisations, both uh, government organisations, but also a lot of not-profit organisations as well. Look, I mean, for everyone, it really, this time, so unprecedented that, that overnight we shut down, we have refunded tens and tens of thousands of tickets and, you know, we had artists booked and all sorts of things. So it really uh, was a, a, about sustainability in the short term for us and that package meant that we could you know keep all of our staff meaningfully employed and we can you know keep our staff on board uh, and importantly that we can keep a commitment to artists and make sure that we're getting uh, those funds through to artists and, and we're doing that now virtually through our live streams which you know we want we'll talk about in a moment but really what it meant for us was that we, it was immediate it was immediate term in terms of how do we keep uh, how do we keep going how do we keep our staff engaged and how do we support artists uh, both uh, locally now in terms of keeping artists uh, and particularly keeping the staff mm. engaged one of the things I imagine that the staff will have been doing apart from endless bloody zoom meetings which has been <laughs> the experience for everyone is talking yep. about strategy because as far yeah. as I'm aware um, a range of organizations and I'm sure Geelong mm. Art Center is one of them don't mm. just have a strategy and a plan for reopening there are so many variables and so many kind of yeah. different potentials what is the future looking like? When do you think Geelong Art Centre will be reopening its doors? And how staggered will that be in terms of what small audiences to begin with gradually increasing over size? Yeah, look, it's a really tricky question in terms of how and when uh, we will reopen and, you know, cultural uh, institutions in particular are, are, are really, uh, there's a lot of variables, as, as you said. I just got another Zoom meeting, speaking of Zoom meetings, uh, with a, a lot of cultural institutions that were talking about how do we stagger it, how do we make it safe people and look really when we look at this we need to come back to all the time keep coming back to the health messaging um, as, as much as we can't wait you know it just goes against every bone in our body as artists as creators because we want to get together the show's got to go on but really we have to come back to what the health messaging is and how many people we can get into an audience so for us at the Geelong Arts Centre, we're really looking at um, obviously working really closely with the uh, Department of Health, with Minister Foley and Creative Victoria. We are a, a state government agency, but looking at how we can have a gradual reopening. And, you know, we're at the moment we're closed uh, until the end, uh, end of June. Uh, that, was, that was an announcement we made. Uh, and then so we're now looking at... What does it look like towards the end of June, early July for us that we can gradually reopen 
some of the building, but that doesn't mean we're going to be able to get shows on with people in, in, in them straight away. So we need to figure out, you know, there's all sorts of complexities which I'm, lots of people are looking at. You know, how do you do you have one row of seats and then you have a, a, another row that is completely empty? How do you manage bookings of people coming in? If you're coming in with a group of six or eight people, uh, are they friends? Are they family? Like there's so many, so much that goes into thinking about how do we do it safely. Uh, and for us uh, at the Geelong Arts Centre, we're really thinking about how do we keep connected to artists and audiences? And we've really done a lot of work to do that in a digital space, to, to take that online, to make it interactive, to still make it fun. Uh, and then as in, in July, we'll start thinking about how do we open our building again? How do we, do we get our box office reopened? We have a co-working space here. How do you, how do you have a co-working space? That, um, that's all for creative and artists. How do we have that that runs safely uh, in the short term? So lots of things to think about, uh, and it will definitely be a gradual reopening. Uh, and, and then there's also the viability things of how do you, how do you put on a show for 50 100 people only uh, and bring in an artist and make sure that it's viable longer term as well. That's one of the things that I'm intrigued by in particular because uh, mm. the, the health issue uh, means that seating will have to change at least uh, uh, in the next three to six months. Uh, and yeah. uh, I've seen a photo f floating around on Facebook, which I'm sure <laughs> everybody in the performing arts has looked yeah. at with a sense of kind of shock but understanding yeah. that a, a sh an image of an auditorium from above with every second mm. row completely removed yeah. uh, and uh, pretty much every third and fourth seat removed so that there are two yeah. seats, two empty seats uh, or yeah, two empty spaces yeah. where seats used to be. A single seat, for example, if you have somebody <laughs> yeah. like me who's happily coming to the theatre on their own. Another yeah, two fine. missing seats mm -hmm. and then uh, another two seats for a couple to attend the theatre who might have been in isolation together. That means yeah. that in an auditorium that would normally seat 500 people, mm -hmm. you're safely looking at, what, maybe 80 people. Yeah. Staging a show for 80 people is not going to be financially viable for a lot of organisations and a lot of artists. Does being yeah. a, a state-supported organisation make it slightly more viable for Geelong Arts Centre to work within those parameters, unlike mm. uh, a venue that might be more focused on, on a commercial imperative? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there, I think there definitely is, and I think when you're a, a, a funded organisation, that we have, uh, we absolutely have a responsibility to to supporting. Uh, well, I feel like for us, primarily, it's around supporting artists. Uh, and supporting the community—that's what—that's what we, you know, it absolutely drives us. So, is there a way that we will be able to get some uh, some audiences in for some of maybe for some of our live streams? So, you know, at the moment, we our, our 800 seat Playhouse Theatre is a, a broadcast studio. So that's what we're doing in there. We've been able to have. You know, the, the guidelines where you only have 10 people, including the performers and the cast, so we've been managing that and broadcasting. But now we're going, okay, well, if we're going to be doing those on a, on a Friday night, which we're doing on every Friday at 8 o'clock, we do our live streams, do we bring in an audience of 50 into our 800-seat theatre? We surely we could manage that safely. And so we're looking at things like that, that we we're, we're, um, already have that commitment to artists and, and supporting artists. How can we then start to try and get an audience in of 50? But then you know, there's the deep cleaning that needs to happen. There's our, our retraining or extra training of our front-of-house staff. Um, do we have the box office open? Do we have the cafe open? I mean... Uh, you know, how do you serve food and tea and coffee and all that sort of stuff safely as well? So, yes, I think there is absolutely 
and, and an obligation for uh, any organisation that's funded to to really go back to what their purpose is, which is you know for us it's supporting artists, supporting the community, and being a connection you know between artists and audience. So that's something we will look at, but it's really really complicated and it'll be iterative. It'll be something that we will have to evolve over the coming months. That notion, certainly, uh, of being able to bring a small audience of up to 50 mm. people uh, into what is already being a live stream concert, would I imagine make a huge difference for the performer, for example? Oh, yeah. Because one of the, <laughs> some of the feedback I've been hearing from artists is talking about the ghost audience, and they yeah. they feed off the energy that the audience provides in a live performance. Mm. The artist gives energy to the audience and vice versa. When they're just yeah. performing to an audience on Zoom, <laughs> that energy isn't there, and it seems that... Quite a few performers are finding the experience somewhat draining. Yeah, and look, I completely get that as well. I, I, I've, we've had a few of our live streams, and they've, you know, they've been fabulous. The artists have done a great job, but particularly those artists that are, if you work in a comedy, a cabaret, fringe in their fringe kind of space, your your whole act and, and so much of it is about the energy and that exchange that happens between a, a, an artist and audience. And so it's been really interesting watching some of those artists uh, do that kind of throw out a line to this camera, which is literally you're in a black room and you can see this little red dot and that's it and that's what you're, you're playing to. And there's a, yeah, sure, there's some crew in there, but you're throwing out a, a, a really awesome joke and then nothing, there's nothing back. So how do you, where do you go from there? So I think it'll definitely help um, bringing a sm- even a smaller audience in there, you know, um, you know, 50 people or 100 people will definitely help that, just that exchange energy that happens between artists and audiences. Now, something else I wanted to think, ask you about, Joel, mm-hmm. is uh, in terms of the future, and this is something that I kind of uh, brought up in the interview that I've published on Arts Hub uh, with uh, Sean Party, the CEO of uh, Brown's Mart Theatre, is what yeah. can the sector learn from the last couple of months of isolation and shutdown and the impact that it's had on the arts ecology? And one of the mm-hmm. things that kind of Sean commented was that maybe the pandemic will help arts organisations learn to put artists first again so that instead of the casual staff who are involved with the cleaning or the counting of the till Mm -hmm. being eligible for JobKeeper and the artists not, do you see that there could be an opportunity here for for the sector as a whole to pivot using that much overused word at the moment towards changing their practices and and putting artists front and centre again rather than putting administration front and centre? Look, absolutely. I think the the, the opportunities uh, and where the critical need is 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 us supporting artists and and thinking local. I think you know for us at the Geelong Art Centre, um, it's been you know over time we kind of it's just natural we look out into the world and we we want to bring the best artists from internationally and nationally and and there's a lot of touring that happens uh, across Australia and across the world regional touring and incredible artists that that go to regional Australia. For us here, we've kind of uh, been developing and looking, we were looking at, at re- reimagining ourselves anyway uh, with big, doing a big redevelopment capital project. But one of the big part of that was uh, supporting local artists, supporting the local industry and finding uh, professional opportunities for uh, for local artists. And, and we were doing that in a small way in our, our we call that our stage two redevelopment, which is, which is open now. There's artist studios and there's a co-working space. But now we've kind of looked at it and we've gone, well, what can we do 
with absolute certainty in the next 12 months because, you know, when are we going to be able to get back to 500 people or more in a, in a theatre? We don't know. What we do know is with the guidelines of 50 or 100 people um, that we're really interested in, like, bespoke genuine experiences that are really, really quite small and intimate. And I think that that's what it, there's a beautiful opportunity in that. Like, how do we really engage with those artists and find those stories that resonate with the local community? And I think out of that, this idea of think local and supporting local, um, it can be done in a way that is really genuine and, and really awesome. And then also still stay connected through digital um, digital to the wider world. I don't think we want to turn our back on, on global thinking, but how do we support uh, local and think local about some of those gems that are right here? Well, certainly the idea of, uh, I don't know, live art uh, that is created for an audience of maybe only four or five people at a time or one-on-one mm. -on -one yeah. works or, and as you mm. say, local stories. And I think we're going to see much more kind of hyper-locality, whether it's uh, at organisations yeah. like uh, Geelong Art Centre or even the mm. major festivals like uh, Sydney Festival uh, or even uh, Darwin Festival in August this year. The, 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 yeah. the role that organisations can play in supporting their local arts ecology and mm. the, the artists who make work in it. Uh, I think that's certainly going to become key. Just before I uh, ask you to tell us what's coming up with some of the live streaming mm. that you're doing, the other challenge for Geelong Art Centre is in terms of a return to normal, you've got a major wave of further redevelopment scheduled for next yeah. year. So that's going <laughs> to further delay any kind of so-called normality. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly been a, a wild ride over the last couple of years that I've been here. We've been uh, redeveloping and building uh, this painting space that we opened in November. We've, like as I said, the four studios and co-working space that just opened in November and is now is temporarily closed. So we'll look to reopen that. But in addition to that, it's you know what what was announced is that we're doing a, a further 128 million dollar redevelopment of the Geelong Arts Centre, supported by the Victorian State Government. We're in we're in detailed design. Or going into design now of what those spaces look like. There's a 500-seat theatre, 250-seat theatre that's been announced, re-looking at all our spaces. And um, that's going full steam ahead. We're, we've been so excited that that is something we've been able to really focus on. Uh, and we've been, like, doing the design virtually. So we've been having Zoom meetings with architects and theatre consultants and our team and stakeholders and, and, and really getting that moving. And um, we've been really, really thrilled to see what's coming uh, through that redevelopment and we're looking forward to, over the next month, or a couple of months, we'll be able to make some announcements and show some visuals of what that new centre is going to look like. I will uh, keep my uh, eyes open for those announcements. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Joel McGuinness, who's the CEO of Geelong Art Centre. We've been discussing reopening strategies, what the, the post-COVID world will mm. look like for artists and organisations. Uh, as Joel mentioned, one of the things that Geelong Art Centre has been doing to ensure that both artists and audiences stay connected during isolation was the Where Creativity Meets at Home live stream program, kicking off on uh, a while ago on Friday nights. Jesse Lloyd is coming up tomorrow night with the Mission Songs Project. Yeah, absolutely. Jesse Lloyd is just such a beautiful artist and um, as is one of the artists that we had in our uh, 2020 season, which, as uh, most uh, arts organisations, doesn't doesn't exist in the same way anymore. But um, Jesse's uh, local, and Jesse's going to um, come down to Geelong Arts Centre, and we'll have the have the live stream. 
from 8 o'clock. Um, the stories are just beautiful stories that, that Jessie's collected from around Australia, uh, going to uh, Aboriginal missions and talking to elders and talking to community there and sharing them in a way that is just this collection of, of really a oral history uh, and, and sharing them in such a, in such a beautiful uh, way. So we can't wait to have Jessie Lloyd with us 8 o'clock tomorrow. You can um, tune in for that. And look, we've really seen, we had, uh, we've had a and asking pretty awesome program of different artists with such unique points of view. We had um, Taylor Henderson last week uh, uh, with his with his dad and um, was playing songs, uh, both covers and original songs. Uh, and we were seeing, we've been seeing this really amazing phenomenon that we hadn't thought of, was which the people were um, dialing, it were tuning in from. We were getting all these comments saying, "Hi, we're we're watching from Mumbai in India or Cornwall in the UK and." Scotland and uh, and USA and people that are that we in Geelong in particular, like we put on our shows and we have great audiences. But suddenly, we're, through these live streams, we're able to share stories in new ways to parts of the world that we never would have thought about um, reaching before. And you know, we've, we've been partnering with um, with Time Out Magazine and Visit Victoria and and others, uh, and just seeing that we can actually share stories um, far and wide in a way that we haven't thought of before. If people want to jump online this Friday night at 8pm to see Jesse Lloyd's mission songs, uh, geelongartcentre.org.au is the website to go to and you'll find a link on the front page. Joel McGuinness, many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning and I look forward to continuing this conversation with you and your colleagues across the sector in the coming weeks. As And soon, soon we can actually see live performance again in front I of know, our very real- eyes. Real people in a, in a theatre. I, I can't wait for that. And, and I will never complain about having to go to the show again or going to the live performance again. <laughs> I think we're all going to really value it and treasure it. But thanks so much, Richard, for the chat. And, yeah, really great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>